Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Wake up every morning with just the news. All the news and none of the noise. Good morning and welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here with us. So what can we expect with the coronavirus vaccine distribution? I can't think of a better expert than the Surgeon General of the United States to walk through this with us. Good morning, Jerome Adams. Good morning. Great to be with you. And, uh, you know, it's a really challenging week as we see cases, as we see hospitalizations, as we see deaths continue to hit record highs. So vigilance is incredibly important. But uh, the story of the week is another V, vaccines. Hope is on the way, and I want people to know that the finish line is in sight, uh, and that's why we should have the, the courage, the optimism, the fortitude to keep running hard until we can get to that finish line. So finish line, walk us through what that looks like for you. What's the timeline? Well, important for people to know that this isn't a light switch. It is more like a dimmer switch. And so what we're going to do is start by uh, immunizing for impact. We want to make sure the people who are hardest hit by this virus, particularly seniors in nursing homes who are 0.4% of the population but account for 40% of the deaths, are being protected. And uh, that will turn that dimmer switch up just a little bit because then those folks will be less likely to have complications and end up in the hospital, which will help our capacity and will keep our seniors safe. And we'll be able to start visiting them in nursing homes more freely again. We're also uh, vaccinating healthcare workers, particularly on the front lines, which will turn that dimmer switch a little bit more, help us deal with this surge, uh, help us protect the people who are out there protecting us. And uh, about 3 million doses will go out this week. We expect another 2 million next week. Uh, By the end of December, we will be at 20 million people vaccinated. By the end of January, we will be at 50 million. By the end of February, we anticipate being at 100 million people, which is half of the adult population vaccinated by February. So that dimmer switch is really going to be moving uh, once we get to 2021. But again, we've got to hang on with the three W's, wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance, and be smart about your holidays this year. I want people really thinking about that right now and making the appropriate plans to stay as safe as possible. And uh, Surgeon General, one thing that uh, your administration has talked about is focusing on minority communities because very often they have underlying health conditions, whether it's obesity uh, or just other issues that might make them more vulnerable to the coronavirus. Uh, And you're focusing on historically black colleges and universities for distribution. Um, What's your response to people like Louis Farrakhan, who has been a, a leader for some in the black community? He called the vaccine, quote, toxic waste. What's your response to folks like that? Well, I have a three-step approach that I take when engaging people. Number one, it's it's acknowledge. And when you hear people speak in that manner, it is because they have a deep, uh, an incredibly deep level of distrust of the system. And that distrust comes from 
uh, real places of, of historical harms that were done to African-American com uh, communities, uh, the Tuskegee experiments that happened uh, uh, not too long ago where they were experimenting on uh, African-American men who had syphilis and denied them treatment that could have prevented complications. Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were taken from her without her knowledge from biopsy tissue and then used for other scientific studies. These things really happened, and you have to acknowledge that or people won't listen to you. And then you have to address that. You've got to tell them, we have Office of Human Research Protections that was put in place after Tuskegee. We have independent uh, review boards at every institution looking at studies. We have data safety monitoring boards uh, and independent groups that are looking at these vaccines, including many people of color, to ensure that those harms never, ever, ever occur again. And then we have to engage with, like you said, historically black colleges and universities. The Divine Nine, who I spoke to earlier this week, which is a group uh, of presidents of African-American fraternities, <clears throat> excuse me, and sororities. Influencers like Steve Harvey, who I spoke to last week, and give them the facts about this vaccine uh, so that they can spread it to the people who will listen to them. And then finally, you heard probably uh, that I'm going to get the vaccine along with the vice president tomorrow. And we're doing that, number one, because I'm a healthcare worker myself. Uh, I still work at Walter Reed Medical Center. Uh, I deploy as a uniformed service officer. I'll be going uh, to Columbus, Indi uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis, Indiana in the next few days. But, but the real reason that I am excited to do this is because I want to lead by example. I want other people of color to see that at the end of the day, I'm walking the talk. I trust this vaccine because I've seen the data. Uh, I know it's safe, and I know it's incredibly effective, and it's how we end this pandemic. And Surgeon General, I want to ask you, because I was listening to some coverage from NPR this morning, and they were talking about how the French president has just been diagnosed with the coronavirus, and they said that he was taking it, uh, Macron has been taking the coronavirus much more seriously than President Trump. They even said that President Trump had, quote, poo-pooed the coronavirus. What's your response to that sort of media coverage? Because I think we've seen this over and over in the media, folks saying that the president didn't take this seriously enough. Well, I can tell you, having been on the task force since February, that we have been meeting regularly. Um, people have been working 24-7. And uh, unfortunately, you have a pandemic superimposed on top of a presidential election, um, an impeachment trial, uh, a social justice movement that was long overdue, but which makes it harder to have uh, conversations solely about health. And uh, I'm not saying that the response was perfect. But I am telling you that uh, we've been in the White House working with the folks over there um, and then working with everyone throughout government to try to uh, respond to this pandemic in a uh, very scientifically based way. Um, I can't speak for the president. I can't speak for President uh, Macron. But what I can tell you is the scientists, the career officials, the people at the White House and at HHS have ha been doing uh, nothing but focusing on this pandemic for, uh, uh, for, for the entirety of it. And, uh, you know, that leads to another topic, which I know you and I have talked about before. Uh, one of the concerns I have is that there is so much focus on the pandemic 
that many people are forgetting that individuals are dying from uncontrolled blood pressure. They're dying from maternal mortality. One in four women says that they've missed a prenatal care appointment. Four right, absolutely. Children. And I want to talk about that because yes. that that is one of your new initiatives uh, that you're focusing on maternal health. And it's something that's important to my family because my mother almost died giving birth. Uh, and so I really appreciate that you are, through your new report, calling for increased attention on maternal health. What are the biggest takeaways here, real quick, in 15 seconds before break, that you want people to take from this report? Big takeaways, a woman dies every 12 hours from pregnancy-related complications in the United States, but two-thirds of these are preventable. And so you can go to SurgeonGeneral.gov, find tips that everyone can, uh, can, can adhere to to help make the U.S. the safest place on the planet to give birth. Well, we certainly support that, and we thank you for your work. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's Jerome Adams, the Surgeon General of the United States. Stay with us. We have a bipartisan group on the phone with us or on Skype with us. Ryan Clancy, stick around. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield here also with Congressman Mo Brooks. We are talking about his plans to challenge the Electoral College. Congressman, I want to play some sound down in Georgia. Your colleague, uh, Representative Biggs from Arizona, was down there. Let's take a listen. We have to do two. How is Congress going to stop the steal? Yeah. How is Congress going to steal? Yeah, how are we going to vote on a, on a system that is already corrupt and going to steal it from us again? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now. Paper ballots is what we need. Yeah, yes. And we need to push Congress to tell Governor Kemp for a special election so that we can pull it together and we can actually stop this steal. We can all go and we can Great. vote, but it's not going to do a damn bit of good if we don't take it back. And then there was also reports that we've been reporting at Just the News that the president has called for broad reforms, uh, including voter identification um, and also just making sure that there are, uh, you know, only lawfully registered voters who are voted. Um, but my question is, is this all too little too late? Because you could say, and we were talking before the break about you know, illegal immigrants or people who even are here with green cards and, but should not vote because they're not U.S. citizens. Is this all too little too late, Congressman? Well, that's going to be up to the American people. And by the way, I'm proud as can be about the patriotism that was just displayed by Americans who are upset and are willing to fight for their republic. Uh, those are tremendous citizens and individuals. And quite frankly, right now, America needs more patriots like that, that care and are willing to become involved and are willing to fight. Now, is it too little too late? If the American people get behind an effort to have a fair and honest election system, then no, it's not too little and it's not too late. Because on January the 6th, the United States Congress has the power to reject, reject any state submission of its electoral college totals to the United States Congress. And that's one of the things I'm going to be pushing. I do not believe that the vote count as reported by uh, officials in Pennsylvania, Georgia, or Nevada are honest and accurate. And as such, at a minimum, we ought to reject the vote counts from those three states and any other state that we believe has a, such a badly flawed election system as to render their vote counts unworthy of trust. Now, we saw the Supreme Court weigh in on the Electoral College certification in Pennsylvania, and that deadline is coming up. The electors are supposed to vote on December 14th. And I spoke to some legal scholars, and they said uh, the claim on the 12th Amendment, which is the contingent election that would give the delegations 
each state one vote, uh, and there are more Republican delegations uh, than Democrat delegations in the 50 states, so Republicans would win in that scenario. However, they've been telling me that that scenario would only play out if before December 14th that the electors, uh, that, that it's challenged there, that your, your challenge wouldn't match up what uh, the contingent election outlines under the 12th Amendment. What's your response to that? Oh, I respectfully disagree. Uh, we're talking apples and oranges. Under the 12th Amendment in particular, that's where you elect a new president based on no candidate for president receiving a majority of electoral college votes. While it's similar to, it's also different than the process by which we reject electoral college votes of states on January the 6th. That's the reporting date. And there have been times in the past where we've had these kind of contests. By way of example, in 1876, Rutherford B. B. Hayes, Republican, led by one vote in the Electoral College, but that one vote was a majority. However, there were contests to the vote count submitted by Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana because they all voted Republican for Rutherford B. Hayes. Now, if you know your history, you know Republicans really weren't well received in the South after the Civil War, after the invasion, after the destruction to the Southern economy. And it's implausible that South Carolina, Florida, or Louisiana would submit a Republican delegation to the Electoral College on behalf of Rutherford B. Hayes. So there was a contest. Ultimately, Congress decided to appoint a commission. Half of the members of, of the commission were from each party with one tiebreaker, who, as it turned out, later became a Republican. They submitted a report to the United States Congress. There was still a big battle going on. The Senate was one party and the House was a different party. And a compromise was reached, and this was the compromise. Rutherford B. Hayes, we will not strip you of those electoral college votes from South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana if you will agree to end the northern occupation of the southern states. That ended Reconstruction, and Rutherford B. Hayes became president of the United States. Congressman, so do you think there's novel. a do you think there's a comparable compromise? You were talking about the the uh, you know the withdrawal of troops. There was there is some chips on the table uh, for this deal to be made. Do you think there's a similar sort of deal that could be made? Well, there are two big aspects to all this. Number one is who's president of the United States, but number two, are we going to fix the systemic flaws in our election system? It might be it might be that a compromise could be reached on fixing the systemic flaws in our election system that have empowered and allowed the Socialist Democrats to steal this election from the American people. That might be a compromise that some people would be worth entering into. I don't know. This is the first time a compromise has been mentioned uh, is in this kind of discussion that we're having right now. Uh, I don't know what the stand would be, but as for me, I want to fix the election system, and I want to make sure that the individual who got a majority of the lawful votes cast by eligible American citizens, as reflected in the Electoral College count, is the person who's sworn in as president on January 20th, and that individual is Donald Trump. Now, the Wall Street Journal reported about a congressional race in Iowa where it seems that the Democrat challenger is poised to challenge the Republican. Now, the Republican won by just a few votes. Uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks is the Republican, and it appears that her Democratic opponent, Rita Hart, is going to use a 1969 federal statute to have the U.S. House of Representatives pick the winner. Uh, do you think that this is going to uh, work? And what's your response in terms of, again, the Democrats who say what you're doing is trying to subvert democracy? 
Well, again, it's hypocrisy on the part of the Democrats, but what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And let's be clear, it is Article 1, Section 5 of the United States Constitution that makes the House of Representatives the supreme and final judge and jury of who wins contested House races. So that Iowa case that you just mentioned, uh, Lisa Hart, she's the Democrat who lost, according to the Iowa elected officials. She has filed an election contest with the House of Representatives, and we are going to be the ones that decide who won, Lisa Hart, the Democrat, or Miller Meeks, who, according to the elected officials in Iowa, won a majority of the votes. I hope we will respect Iowa's certification. The other side, the Socialist Democrats, they're going to have to come up with some compelling evidence that the results air before they vote, I hope, before they vote to install one of their own as a Democrat congresswoman, even though, according to the vote counters, she lost. So, but in terms of the, uh, the election results in this state, so this is a state that certified, um, you know, out, an outcome here in the House race that you agree with, um, so you respect that vote. What would you say to critics who say, well, so it seems like you only want to certify and keep votes that you agree with, and everywhere else there's fraud? I had a caveat. Lisa Hart should not win unless they come forth with compelling and overwhelming evidence that she, in fact, won a majority of the votes cast by lawful and eligible American voters. If you apply that same standard to the presidential race, I believe that the evidence is compelling, the evidence is overwhelming that Donald Trump won the Electoral College if only lawful votes are counted. All right, Congressman, we appreciate it. Thank you for giving us your perspective. My pleasure. And stay with us. We have our breaking news editor, Joe Weber, to give us all the latest headlines. Don't go away. Welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield. Glad that you're here. Still have Michelle Bachman. We've been lucky to have her this whole top half of the show. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the president's debate strategy for Thursday. I have a piece on justthenews.com about this topic. I spoke with folks from the president's team, and they affirmed that the president is indeed going to go after these issues of corruption. And what's interesting is in this analysis, I looked at, for example, Gallup, also looking at data from Pew. They gave voters the chance to rank the priorities that are most important to them for the election. Nowhere on that list was issues of corruption. Nowhere on that list was issues of government trust or government accountability. And so the Trump campaign said, even though it's not reflected in these types of polls, this is the reason why he's going to hammer it home, because according to their own internal sourcing, it is a big issue for them. So Michelle, I have to ask you, because you are an expert on debates, and you are also a trailblazing Republican woman, the first Republican woman on these debate stages. Do you think this issue of corruption, do you think it is a bit off-putting? Do you think for female voters, this could be too much in terms of focusing on this as opposed to focusing on the economy, kitchen table issues, healthcare, things like that? You're asking a great question because the president has an unprecedented challenge in front of him. 
uh, the issue of corruption is really a dual issue. It is both corruption and censorship at the same time, because we know that Google, Twitter, who are the worst offenders, but then other social media platforms as well, are keeping some of the most significant news away from the American public. They've continued to give the benefit of the doubt to Joe Biden, saying that this is Russia in disinformation, when in fact, um, now the FBI director and the CIA have come out and said, no, this is not, or DNI, the head of DNI right. came out and said this is John not yep. John Ratcliffe mm -hmm. came out and said this is not disinformation this is real this is a real platform these are hunters actual uh, emails and, and the campaign the Biden campaign has not denied and they've the not denied it. Of the emails. and the, the the smoking gun in all of this is the fact of the email that indicates that Joe Biden was a participant in getting money from the Chinese communists including the Chinese communist military there were payoffs that were involved to Hunter Biden but also Joe Biden as well that that's a significant issue because remember, China was Joe Biden's middle name. He's the one who said that uh, China is not a competitor of the United States. And in what universe could you say that? And also to say that uh, uh, China is not a threat to the United States. China sees the United States as its number one enemy in the world. So there's a real disconnect with Joe Biden. But again, the problem is the bulk of the people in the United States aren't acquainted with this story of corruption because the mainstream media have insulated Joe Biden. They won't tell the American people this has never happened before. And so it, it's really going to be tough. We know that the moderator, this Kristen Welker, is against President Trump. The, she's not for him. She well, won't... we know she deleted her Twitter account or made it Oh, deactivated. yeah. So now she's completely she... sanitized. Right. right. And then she right, brought right. it back. As, which raised a lot of questions, and the president even said, this is a red flag. Well, yeah. well let's face it. This is a, it's a phony debate commission. These are phony moderators. So, again, the deck is stacked against the president. The president will have to do a lot. He'll have to lay foundation for the corruption. He'll have to explain the corruption. He gets two minutes to do that. That's not easy to do, to do all that in two minutes. But he also has to pivot, and he has to go to his own unprecedented record of accomplishments. No one has, has accomplished more. Even Ronald Reagan, who's the standard bearer for conservatives, uh, Donald Trump accomplished more in his first two years in office than Ronald Reagan did in eight years. And that's no slap against Ronald Reagan. It just shows the spectacular level of achievement under Donald Trump. I would but from think a debate strategy standpoint, again, yes. you're, you're an expert because you were on the debate stage. Do you think that it, it risks muddling his message instead of focusing on what he's done, the policy achievements, whether mm -hmm. it's the foreign policy, Middle East peace deal, the economic growth, the uh, you know, African-American record low unemployment, well, remember, things like that. Is, is, this a, is he risking by doing this? It's, it's, a very, it's a very bold move. Obviously. It's a bold move, but I think he has to do it. It's a lead story that's out there enough that I think he has to do it, and I think he wants to do it. So I think from his perspective, he's got to get this out of the way. But also remember, this debate focus was supposed to be about foreign policy. That was the original well, that, that's intent. The other thing that came and then it was canceled issue. because the debate commission... <laughs> They couldn't have it be about foreign policy because that would lead straight into the corruption of Joe Biden. So I think that uh, Donald Trump has every reason to do that. But I think also he has to focus on accomplishments as well. So if you figure a 90-minute debate, that's 45 minutes at most. But then you have to 
cut out for the moderator. And these moderators want to take up all the time for vanity purposes so they can have the camera on themselves. So how many minutes will he get? Will he get 35 minutes? That's not a lot of time. And so he's, he has a lot to accomplish in that time. But he's one of the best communicators. Uh, many people don't like his style, but he actually communicates a lot just with his facial expressions. He, he has a short he uses shorthand in his phrasing, so uh, he's got to figure out how to do that. But again, to this audience, he has to lay some verbal foundation so people know what he's talking about. That's, to me, his greatest challenge on this issue of corruption because a lot of mainstream people haven't heard about the corruption issue, so he'll have to explain it. But he doesn't want to use up all of that time so that he misses talking about his accomplishments. So, well, but, but also the, the Burisma issue, these questions around Hunter Biden, those are not new, though. So in that respect, is he risking, again, bringing up these issues well, to the point Well, that goes of, to the president's benefit, though, too. The fact that this is really the focus of the impeachment, uh, it was about a phone call, but really the, the, the bottom line was the fact of the corruption of Joe Biden. So in that respect, that's good for the president because that currency was in the realm, you might say, within this last year. So a lot of people are aware of that. The fact is the White House has indicated this is a topic that the president will be talking about. He just has to get that accomplished and then pivot and then move on to his accomplishments. I think he'll get that done. And in your experience being on the debate stage, I mean, you were there with a lot more candidates. He's going to have more focus. What do you think is the best strategy for him in terms of how to talk to the moderator compared to the people at home? Because that was certainly something Joe Biden did was that he, in many respects, just ignored Trump. He wouldn't even look at Trump mm -hmm. and he would speak directly to the camera. Do you think that's more effective? I think it was a little cheesy when Joe Biden did that. Obviously, he was told by his handlers that's what he needed to do. I don't think anyone would say that the first debate was stellar for either party. I watched it a second time. And actually, it wasn't as bad as the first time when I watched it. I had a hard time sleeping after the first time I watched it. <laughs> a lot of a people, lot of people did. That. <laughs> it was difficult. But the format will be different. It'll be a better format. The president certainly is educable. He's learned what works, I think, and what doesn't work. But all eyes will be on that debate. And um, I think, again, the, the main thing isn't style. The main thing is what are the policies and what has the president done? And what will the average person's life be like if Donald Trump is president versus Joe Biden being president? That's the big question. And if President Trump can let people know, do you want to pay $2 a gallon for gasoline or do you want to pay $6 a gallon for gasoline? Because that's reality. I mean, I was there in Congress when we saw gas go up to $4 a gallon, $5 a gallon under Barack Obama and Joe Biden. That's what the future will be. And it isn't just gasoline in your car. It's what are you going to pay for electricity and gas for your home to heat your home. And those are very big impacts as well as um, limited options for job availability. And that's what will happen if we have the Green New Deal go into effect. So it is a, it is a very dim prospect under Joe Biden for the future. And that's something that I hope the president highlights. All right, Michelle Bachman, we appreciate it. Uh, stick around, folks. We are going to talk next about 50 Cent and his comments on President Trump and taxes.
Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, and so glad that you're here with us. Well, if you read the Bible, you know about Exodus, where Moses led his people out of the land of Egypt, out from slavery. Uh, well, here in America, we have our own modern-day Exodus, it seems, and people are being exiting or being led out of California, it seems, by the policies more they're being driven out of California. Uh, we've been reporting about this here at Just the News, that media stars, business magnates uh, are leading the exodus from California to southern states. Uh, and joining me to discuss this is Jonathan Williams. He's chief economist and executive vice president of policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Good morning, Jonathan. Hi, Carrie. Good to be with you. So, yes, we've been reporting about this. My colleague, Daniel Payne, recently wrote a piece um, looking at all these different technology companies and media companies um, who have been saying, we're done. We're, we're going to leave. Um, and you yourself put up a tweet um, talking about Elon Musk. Um, and Elon Musk is joining the growing list of the millions of Americans who have voted with their feet and moved away from high-tax states like California. He chose wisely a 13.3% top personal income tax rate in California versus zero in Texas. So why do you think this is happening now? Um, because a lot of these policies were in place for decades. Well, in short, I mean, California has been committing economic malpractice for decades, as you point out. Uh, but I think you hit a tipping point at some point. And even for folks that may love the beautiful weather and uh, Silicon Valley and all the things that California has to offer, there is that point. And the straw that breaks the camel's back in this case happens to be just kind of this anti-business and anti-success attitude that's come out of California. And, uh, you know, there was a talk of a wealth tax earlier on this year in Sacramento. There's a talk of even raising taxes in the midst of the pandemic on commercial real estate and other things. And so it's just one after another unforced error from left-wing policymakers coming out of Sacramento. And even folks like Elon Musk, uh, HP Enterprises, a couple of weeks ago going to Texas. Uh, you, you go down the list and it's dozens of companies and successful individuals. And California has a huge problem in terms of now lost revenue and lost economic vitality. I mean, we're really talking about a brain drain now leaving California, going to places like Texas and Florida and states that value businesses and success. And we reported, I mean, there is so much happening with the presidential election that some folks missed the fact that in San Francisco, the voters themselves passed what they call an overpaid executive tax. This is for executives who are making 100 times more than workers. Um, why do you think people are doing this? Because, um, you know, some say, well, you know, looking back, you know, during the 50s, for example, that ratio was a lot smaller, that there, the difference between the boss and the workers actually was a lot more narrow, and it has been growing. So do you think there is some truth to say, hey, if uh, you're a conservative, you like the past, actually, in the past, this ratio was actually smaller. Well, I mean, it's one of the clear examples of, uh, as Milton Friedman would say, an unintended consequence of government policy. Regardless if you feel somebody is overpaid or underpaid, you know, wages are determined by a competitive market, and it's extremely competitive to get some of the top talent that runs some of the Silicon Valley companies and others that are worldwide leaders in technology. And uh, I think when you look at what's the alternative and you see these horrible ideas like the sex, uh, success tax and, and uh, wealth taxes and high income tax rates is, yeah, you may have all the right intentions in trying to equal some sort of playing field. But at the end of the day, you're making California poorer 
in Texas, in Florida, in Tennessee, in Arizona, richer because these individuals are not locked into California or any other state. You know, here in America, we don't build walls around states. We allow people to decide where they want to move and they vote with their feet routinely. And California can only get away with so much, even with the great weather and all the other factors in California's advantage. That's why I think we're seeing this tide that just continues to build of people looking to leave. We just had a CEO, a tech CEO, who moved his company. First, they had tried Silicon Valley, then they moved up to Seattle. Now they've settled in Austin, Texas, for a lot of these reasons you're talking about. He also said culturally he thinks that Silicon Valley is just not very open to people. He's a devout Christian. Um, but I want to get your thoughts, though, on the, what this means from a census perspective, because we just are wrapping up the 2020 census, but a lot of this migration is happening here in 2020. Do you think that could result in California being overrepresented in Congress? Well, you raise a fascinating question here, and it's something we've talked about over the last decade. I write the book Rich States, Poor States with Art Laffer, and we track not only people, how they vote with their feet. California's down now 800,000 on net over the last decade, so it absolutely is going to have an impact on new congressional districts after the 2020 round of reapportionment that's going to happen just in several months now. And with the pandemic kind of scrambling migration patterns, if anything, I think we've seen an uptick in out-migration of places that are high cost of living and people working remotely, employers rightly giving employees flexibility, and them trying to make a better uh, cost of living and a higher standard of living. And so do you think, do you think like California, California even more. Do you think California is going to lose a seat or more than one seat after the reapportionment? I think it's very possible. And, and you look at the history of it, California gained seats every decade from 1850 to 2010, and sometimes many seats. 2010, it stayed equal and just even, didn't gain or lose. I think there's a real possibility for the first time in American history, California will lose a seat in 2020, and that's going to be real news. Well, certainly that's uh, something that uh, we are going to be tracking here. And in terms of the other states, uh, what other states are we seeing out-migration real quick? Well, Illinois, uh, New York, uh, states that continue to take this philosophy of high taxes and anti-business environment, these are some of the biggest out-migration states. And they're going to states that have no income tax and have much better quality of life. All right, Jonathan Williams with the American Legislative Exchange Council. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. And stay with us, folks. We will be right back. Good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield and glad you're here. Obviously, the big story this morning is the hearing for the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, there was a sharp exchange that apparently just happened we want to let you know about. It was between Senator Dianne Feinstein, as we know, the uh, it, during the other round of the Feinstein Barrett uh, hearing for the circuit court, that was when Feinstein questioned her faith and said the dogma lives loudly within you, Judge. Uh, this time around, Senator Feinstein is going after Justice, Judge Barrett on the issue of abortion. She calls her Amy. Um, she says Amy won't answer the question, which was, do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly de decided? The judge says, Senator, I completely understand why, you're, why you are asking the question but again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Uh, she's referring there to Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 abortion ruling. Uh, and Barrett says further, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law besides cases 
uh, beside cases as decide the cases as they come. Um, now we've got some sound here directly from the judge herself yesterday that I want to play uh, and give some thoughts on that. Let's roll that tape. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. That is the approach that I have strived to follow as a judge on the Seventh Circuit. In every case, I have carefully considered the arguments presented by the parties, discussed the issues with my colleagues on the court, and done my utmost to reach the result required by the law, whatever my own preferences might be. I try to remain mindful that while my court decides thousands of cases a year, each case is the most important one to the litigants involved. After all, cases are not like statutes, which are often named for their authors. Cases are named for the parties who stand to gain or lose in the real world, often through their liberty or livelihood. When I write an opinion resolving a case, I read every word from the perspective of the losing party. I ask myself how I would view the decision if one of my children was the party that I was ruling against. Even though I would not like the result, would I understand that the decision was fairly reasoned and grounded in law? And there you have Judge Barrett in her opening statement yesterday. You can see she's trying to make the distinction between policymakers and a judge uh, to say that a legislator has a role and that is to make policy and that the judge's role is only to interpret. Now, on the other uh, spectrum of things in terms of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who right now has currently uh, been very uh, persistent in her questions uh, against the judge. She's asking her about everything from gun control to health care and the Affordable Care Act. Um, let's hear what Senator Feinstein had to say yesterday. This hearing has brought together more than 50 people to sit inside of a closed door room for hours while our nation is facing a deadly airborne virus. This committee has ignored common sense requests to keep people safe, including not requiring testing for all members, despite a coronavirus outbreak among senators of this very committee. By contrast, in response to this recent Senate outbreak, the leaders of Senate Republicans rightly postponed business on the Senate floor this week to protect the health and safety of senators and staff. Mr. Chairman, for the same reasons, this hearing should have been postponed. The decision to hold this hearing now is reckless and places facilities workers, janitorial staff, and congressional aides and Capitol Police at risk. And there you had Kamala Harris, the Democratic vice presidential nominee. Uh, and you can hear her thoughts there. She said this hearing should not have happened. It's a very interesting comments there from her because she's saying 
it's a political statement for her to do this remotely because we all know she loves to be uh, having direct confrontation in the room. So the fact that she's doing this remotely is making her statement that everything should be focused on the coronavirus. Um, let's hear what Lindsey Graham had to say yesterday, his opening remarks. Why are we here? <clears throat> Number one, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on September the 18th. Uh, what can you say about Ju Justice Ginsburg? She was confirmed 96 to 3. Now, those were days that have since passed. I regret that. Uh, 96 to 3. Now, this was a person who worked for the ACLU, someone who was known in progressive circles as an icon. Apparently, just about every Republican voted for her. Her good friend on the court, Justice Scalia, I think, got 97 votes. I don't know what happened between then and now. I guess there's, we can all take some blame. But I just want to remind everybody, there was a time in this country where someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was seen by almost everybody as qualified for the position of being on the Supreme Court, understanding that she would have a different philosophy than many of the Republicans who voted for her. And there you have Senator Graham harking back to a time that is long gone uh, before there was such partisan rancor. Obviously, we will keep you posted on what Democrats are continuing to question of Judge Barrett. Stick around here on Real America's Voice. Hey there, welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield, glad you've been here with us. I wanna put up a map here, but first let's put a tweet from the professor Adam Grant, who is very well known at the University of Pennsylvania. And he says that when you're showing red versus blue maps, that are, it, he says it leads people to see America as more divided and judge people more by their state's stereotypes. For the data, he says, purple maps of state proportions are more accurate and reduce perceived polarization and stereotypes. And then he included a map here, you can see where it's shades, it's shades of purple. So these are all the states for 2020 results where he's saying, look, you're not so starkly different when you're talking about red versus blue. We all have more nuance. We all have people who disagree or agree with us. And we're not so divided. We're not so polarized. We shouldn't be rioting. We shouldn't be throwing names on Twitter uh, because at the end of the day, we're actually way more similar than we think we are. Uh, it's a very interesting thought exercise, and I encourage you to check it out there. Again, um, click that link from Adam Grant because, again, e pluribus unum out of many one. We are one United States of America. This is a great visualization. And yes, these legal challenges are going to be ongoing. You have the president. You just heard from a member of his legal team saying these questions could take weeks to, to litigate, weeks to come out. Um, and we know the electors are going to vote on December 14th. So we are going to be with you every step of the way. But just keep that in mind, folks. We are the purple states of America. Thanks. And we will see you tomorrow. Stay around here. Coming up next is War Room.